Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, you know, I think the review is that it's on for young and old in the neighborhood, and the best way I can convey the situation at the moment is my new favorite uh, movie quotation from Val Kilmer, who is an actor I actually have some real time for, from the Marlon Brando starring The Island of Dr. Moreau. And the Val Kilmer character is sort of the... uh, sidekick scientist who's going mad and his advice to the uh, new arrival on the island who is in fact a prisoner is not to venture outside at night because there's unstable phenomena out there and I think that Mm -hmm. sums up many many situations from my neighborhood to the whole of American society today Absolutely. I think that movie is criminally underrated and it might be nostalgia talking because at the moment our films are not as risky as that one is. Have you watched the documentary about the original version that was going to shoot with, um, oh darn it, what's the the name of that director? His, his name is skipping my mind now. Uh, he did a bunch of cult films he actually lived in my friend Cody Goodfellow's pool for a while in L.A. Um, <laughs> anyhow, he was he was directing the Island of Dr. Moreau, and it was a total shit show. And uh, it's just a fascinating documentary of a, of kind of a train wreck. But my contention is that we need more ambitious shit shows, right? Where Marlon Brando is trying to you know, throughout the, the movie wear progressively sillier hats just because he sees wants to see what he can get away with. Right. I want more of more of that, less um, tightly plotted three act snooze fests and more more disaster, please. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I I knew some people who um, had their uh, luxury mobile homes uh seconded for the shooting of that a lot of which took place in uh, far north queensland in australia and there was you know this huge sort of backwash of gossip and uh you know small town stuff about the shooting of the film and how completely crazy and chaotic it was but you know i I watched and i thought I just was hypnotized the whole time. <laughs> yeah, Richard Stanley is the Richard is the original uh, director. Okay, right. He, he did the he did the recent uh, Color Out of Space, which I enjoyed, which was, by the way, a complete disaster. It's a Lovecraft adaptation that was shot in these garish purples and pinks, and it had a lot of practical effects, faces melting, and it just. It just made no sense. Nicolas Cage's character, as is typical when Nicolas Cage is involved, just oscillates wildly between deadpan, serious, and clownish. I had fun watching the movie because I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen, per se. So anyway, that's uh, a good lead-in, I think, to... Oh, before I lead in, just so that everybody knows, we mentioned this last episode, but this will be our last free episode so what i will do from now on is post a snippet from the patreon 
on this feed, but from now on, we are behind the paywall. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Come over and join us. It will be fun. Anyhow, back to my segue. Spooky stuff. Color out of space. Face is melting, Chris. It is Halloween time. It is. It's getting close to many people's favorite time of the year. You can feel it in the air. That chill has come in. It's a bit wet here. Oh, really? I'm okay. Almost positive. It's it's not it's not wet where you are. But uh, um, yeah, what do we want to talk about on this spooky Halloween episode? Well, I think one thing that just I mean, Halloween is uh, I think a lot of people's favorite time, and for good reason, but. It's sometimes hard to really articulate what those reasons are. I mean, certainly the costume aspect. And I, I will say one thing about this strange uh, a sort of abortion of time that we're living in right now. I've been very pleased to see uh, both personal residences and many local businesses lashing out with some really creative Halloween displays. And uh, at street level, you know, and and that's just encouraging. I think that's a reminder to us all that the psychological tone of any moment in history is not up to the media. It's up to us at street level. And if we engage with things and are excited about it, whatever the occasion is, and we need to really pump up because we're headed into a, you know, a pretty rich holiday time, at least in North America. And it's exciting to see that. Uh, Halloween has always been one of my, uh, well, probably my, my f- most favorite time. Um, I love the, the climate and, and the mood uh, in North America. I've always been excited about the possibilities of a very personal theater that it is just not only excused, but kind of encouraged. And I think that's an important distinction. Personal theater that's excused versus personal theater that's actually encouraged. But what fascinates me about Halloween is that it's really the ceremonial engagement with the idea of horror and fright. You know, and I, I, I find that an amazing psychological achievement. And it, we can find that all around the world. You know, it's not necessarily at that same time, but this idea of engaging with ghosts and demons and monsters and the dead. You know, we do have the Day of the Dead coming up as well. And in our part two segments, we have put forward... Uh, a working paradigm at the moment of human culture beginning as an oscillation between terror and delight. And I can't think of a holiday that we have put together as a society uh, that better expresses that oscillation than Halloween because it's trick or treat, you know? Right. Absolutely. I like that you mentioned the feeling in the air. It's something that I've been trying to put into words forever, but it is this kind of orange and black feeling. It reminds me of when I was a kid and we would decorate the house for Halloween. This was before my parents took an 
unfortunate and brief turn into Christian fundamentalism and decided that Halloween was off limits for a few years. That was a real bummer. <laughs> I'm but sorry to laugh, but a, there you are. It, it is funny in retrospect. My mother was, in. It, I almost said insane. That's very rude. My mother was very focused on making sure that we weren't exposed to violent content. And at one point she had a real sit down and think about whether my stack of Garfield comics were too violent. Um, she meant well, but we laugh about it now. Um, but you know, this engagement with the, with the dead and the all things spooky seems to me to be so important that I almost wish that it happened more often in a year round kind of way, because think about what it does when you're driving down the street and people in their yards as decorations have, you know, human skeletons sitting there and witches and werewolves and things like that. It's a, as you said, a theater of the mind that really puts you into a world where the dead are right there with us and these creatures are real and they're right there with us. And I think it that, that is a huge part in actually communicating with and having a relationship with the dead. I think that theater and play are the mechanisms by which we actually make that kind of contact, contact, I should say. So in your experience with ghosts and spirits and things like that, have they occurred around this time of the year? Are they more of an all year round phenomena? Which, which one is, is more true in your experience? Uh, I would say that in my experience outside America, which has been half my life, and certainly with uh, any kind of uh, really different cultures across Oceania or Africa, that it's much more of an all-round thing, even minute to minute. And I think that's the sort of sacred, magical aspect of this whole... Uh, realm of, of the collective unconscious that people really do take part in all the time. So I've always accepted that Halloween is kind of a, a secularized uh, and accessible and let's face it commercialized version of that. But for me that's been completely acceptable because I think it's better to have access to that world and that possibility of magic, even if it's a degraded sort of uh, Western American, you know, version of that. And I, I think back to um, a friend of mine a long time ago uh, made a beautiful sort of art piece out of cheap drugstore Walgreens plastic fangs you know the kind of fangs mm -hmm. you put in you know mouth and they taste terrible but they mm -hmm. look scary for a moment and they might glow in the dark and the argument was that even though these are sort of just silly kids toys they're symbolic or emblematic as i prefer emblematic of a deeper possibility of engagement with these forces that are not human, that are, you know, essentially mystical and ancient. And they've only been 
they haven't been domesticated by Halloween, but they've been, to some extent, negotiated with. You know, and I like that idea rather than domestication of them. They've been negotiated with uh, at a great time of year in North America. Um, the 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 sudden chill in the air. For anyone who's ever been in New York at Halloween time, I mean, I just think that's the, one of the best times to be there. You know, um, it's before the, the the really the serious cold kicks in. It's after all that summer heat and humidity is gone. There's a kind of a freshness, and in a, in a way, it is a kind of a New Year sort of or renewal sort of celebration because it's our making peace with the spirit world if only on a kind of of you know somewhat trivialized uh neighborhood level you know and i i support any access to that you know i also really appreciate the overt sexuality of adult halloween costumes oh yes from the perspective of a guy uh, it's a nice time of year that people are, it's socially acceptable to dress up as, you know, the slutty version of a doctor or a cheerleader or, you know, whatever. Or a little female That's, demon. Uh, I, don't I recall right. a, a, a picture of, uh, I don't know, I have a sort of an image of at least Rios, maybe you both at Halloween. Mm-hmm. Am I imagining mm-hmm. that? As demons? I think so. I don't know. I, sh- we, I was paying I'm more attention sure to her costume ever... than yours. <laughs> of course, yes, of course. Well, I don't know if we ever specifically went as that per se, but we she does some very weird and interesting costumes that are usually very specific. So uh, <laughs> there have been more innocent years where I went as the as the TARDIS from Doctor Who, and she was like the sexy doctor, right? And uh, but then there there have been ones that have been you know some black leotards and low cut stuff and it's good I give it two thumbs up <laughs> so there's that 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 part of the year can't uh, or that part of the whole ritual and celebration can't be ignored either the the sluts come out and it's a, it's a beautiful thing well it's sort of you know i think that idea of coming out you know which is an interesting mm-hmm. term that we use in in many other contexts uh and letting things out um it's sort of suggestive in a, in a freudian sense that there are so many things that we repress that we need to have mm-hmm. some kind of uh revelation release and also i think that that inherently that needs to be done on a kind of public ceremonial basis, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's definitely true. And I'm trying to remember, this quote is coming to me. Maybe you'll remember who said this, but I believe it was in the discussion of Halloween, this idea that the mask or the makeup is are people's true faces and the faces that we wear every day are the masks this kind of inversion of what we would normally think you know if you put on a you know demon makeup or a freddy krueger mask or something we become more ourselves 
than when we wear the face that we have to take to work every day. You could only become the mask you find, you know? I mean, you, you are that to begin with. I, I think that's kind of a Jungian idea, but I, I think that's, that's inherently true. I, I, I think that mm-hmm. we, we actually do reveal inner character, uh, inner psyche, in that sort of public performance. And we're probably not able, as a society, uh, let alone as, as individuals. Some individuals are more able to do this than others, but on, on societal terms, we're simply not able to cope with that day-to-day in, in explicit terms. We need a theatrical mm-hmm. frame, and Halloween gives us that, you know? Um, and it also gives us the ability to refresh those images because you don't want to uh, wear the same getup this year as you did last year so right right there's that flexibility you know yeah yeah i am notorious for getting very close to halloween and kind of giving up and saying oh well i'll just wear this and that does not fly in the house so i have to be creative luckily this year we ordered our costumes last month so we have everything ready to go but i'm usually terrible about doing that but um, I I wanted this episode for the back half of it I wanted to talk about some ghost stories mm-hmm. so I was curious especially considering your world travels and your time in PNG and stuff like that if you ha- <clears throat> excuse me had any good ghost stories because I, I have some but I'll turn it over to you first because my hunch is that you do well, I certainly do. Um, one of my favorite ones, uh, actually, it, it's it's Malayan pirate uh, in influence, and it's the cutthroat thrown overboard that keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that... Malayan or Malaysian pirates who are very real still, but this goes back way back in time. They were some of the great cross-pollinators uh, across the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. We owe a great deal to them. They're, they spread language and culture uh, and were legitimate traders often, and they were also extremely dangerous people as they remain today. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. And it's kind of a weird variation on on the Moses story. But it goes back about 200 years to uh, a ship that is coming down south towards Indonesia. And a raft is found in the dark. And there is a skeleton a full male, presumably skeleton, on the raft. And being magical people, they think, well, we've got to reel that in, and we're going to mm-hmm. divide the bones amongst us because mm-hmm. they have magical qualities. Full moon night, across the Indian Ocean, you see a skeleton on a raft, you know? You're not going to... Yeah. <laughs> those kind of people just don't go past that they think no 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 we need to embrace this magic 
So the skeleton is brought on board the pirate ship. Beautiful claw-masted thing, you know? Serious sailors. And everybody has knives. And everybody is a pirate, even though the first thing those mm -hmm. people in modern times said to me is, we are not pirates. Um, mm -hmm. And Malaysian as a language is just so beautiful. It's, it's, it's just a lovely thing to hear, even from you know, people with knives and you know, bad intentions. So they bring the skeleton on board. And of course, what happens is there's a fight about the bones, particularly mm -hmm. the skull. And the fight gets very, very intense. And one of them gets his throat cut clean. The head goes off. And they throw it in the ocean. And they continue to divide the bones and finally make a, a piece about where everything is going, who's got which, you know, kind of on a priority mm -hmm. basis, as you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And they turn around and the head is back on the boat. Mm -hmm. The head is back on the boat and looking for the bones. Looking for bones. Mm -hmm. And another fight breaks out. And someone else dies. Stabbed mm -hmm. to the heart this time. So they throw the whole body over into the water and continues sailing south. Full moon still. They turn around, still not sunrise yet, which comes as quickly as sunset, really. Mm -hmm. And the headless body is now on the boat. And joins the other head and is still not happy with what's going on. And only until all of them have killed each other in combat over the magical bones, which have now essentially been forgotten because there are these reanimated corpses that have taken over. And eventually, the entire crew has died and has been replaced by these dead bodies come magically to life in the moonlight. Mm. And that crew is still talked about today. A complete mm. crew of, of dead, reanimated pirates. And pirates and skeletons and ghosts, I mean, it's just, it, you, you can't get better than that. But these are real pirates today, and they still talk about that. That this is, the, you know, it's like the Flying Dutchman sort of legends and things. That, you know, the sea always produces great stories. But I think that's a beautiful story of greed, you know, and a belief in magic. Mm -hmm but also mm -hmm. a, a resuscitation of these ancient possibilities that just don't die. Things that don't die, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's one, that's one ghost story. 
That's and then there one. are the lost pilots. The lost pilots of New Guinea from World War II who would try to lose the Japanese Zeros in the clouds. My great friend Bob said, pilots fear bad weather. True pilots use bad weather. And there are whole villages in New Guinea who believe that there is a lost squadron of allied planes that are always there in, in the huge clouds that start to rise in, in the late afternoon and then become uh, thunder and rain in, in the, the evening or the late afternoon. And when you hear the thunder there, it's not like, you know, it does sound, it sounds like lost planes looking for an airfield that they'll never find. Ghost Riders mm. in the Sky, you know? Dang. So I have two. The first one that comes to mind that's my personal favorite is the story of La Llorona, which okay. is a Mexican story. It is a woman, usually in the story, it is a native woman who has fallen in love with a Spanish conquistador who had sired many children with her and then has abandoned her. And in her grief, she drowns all the children and then kills herself. And her ghost stays by the water wailing for the children and tempting other people's children to wander into the water, never to be seen again. Uh, I just think La Llorona is a beautiful... I think Llorona is a beautiful word. It is. It's, uh, it's lovely. You know, yeah, Yorondo is crying, right? So it's the, the crier, the wailer. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of... This idea that's very frightening, I think, to children, and the reason why this story works so well, is it's this implication that your mother will always love your father more than you. That's what's really scary about that story. The, the murder sucks, too. But the really frightening stuff is that there'd be this, there's this guy who you've never met, who you can never match up to, that your, your mother would sooner not even be here and have you not even be here because you remind her so much of him. Uh, and the idea that there's just this impossible, uh, uh, you know, hurdle to get over that you just, that you just can't, right? Uh, the other story that comes to mind, have you heard of the, the death of Elisa Lamb? No. Okay, this is a true life uh, thing that happened in 2003 at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles. The Cecil Hotel has a history of being a place that not-so-nice people stayed at, kind of a halfway house. Lots of drugs, violence, rape, things like that. But it has a history now as a haunted hotel, and people stay there specifically for this reason. There's a whole cottage industry, by the way, of places uh, that have had murders take place, where people stay overnight. I don't get that. It seems like bad energy, but, you know, you do you. It's none of my business. 
<laughs> but the story of Elisa Lamb is very interesting because she stayed over at the at the Cecil Hotel. She was bipolar. She was diagnosed bipolar, and she was on several medications for it. But she went missing, completely missing. And there is elevator footage of her uh, hiding from something that can't be seen. And if you watch this footage, it's very spooky because she's kind of peeking out of the elevator, seeing something, and then going back into it and kind of trying to hide, pushing a bunch of, a bunch of buttons. And then finally the elevator doors open and she gets off and that was the last time she was caught on camera or anywhere. Nobody could find her. Nobody could find her anywhere. Until a few weeks later when guests at the Cecil Hotel started complaining that their water taps were running very slow and that the water itself was uh, odiferous and had a, a kind of dark color to it, right? So they go up to the roof where there are these four huge thousand gallon water tanks and they open them and sure enough in one of them is her body. And she's completely naked. There are no signs of physical assault, rape, or mysteriously <laughs> enough, suicide, which I thought was just so interesting. You know, not only is there no sign of murder, but there's no sign that she you know, intended to kill herself. Uh, her clothes are floating in the tank with her, and uh, her watch and her phone is with her as well, if I remember correctly. Uh, but the the most mysterious thing is that it takes you know two grown men um, a lot of a lot of strength to pull open the lid to get into that that water tank, and so nobody can figure out what. How? What yeah, yeah. So the ghost aspect of it is that is that elevator footage, right? This idea that something's following her mm -hmm. and something that can't be seen and something that has the power to open up one of these tanks and put her in it. It's never been solved. No one knows what happened. There are theories that the reason why you don't see anybody on the cameras is that someone at the hotel was covering someone's ass, basically, to make sure that they didn't, uh, didn't get caught. But every time, I, again, every time I encourage people to, I'll put it in the show notes, I encourage people to go watch the, the elevator footage because it just, she's acting so erratically and so strangely that she's either having a major psychological episode or she's being followed by some kind of malevolent presence that ended up placing her in the water tank. Oh, I like that. I like mm -hmm. that. You know, it's interesting on... <laughs> One of the uh, many things that I admired about the Australian culture, they have a new, well, relatively new official national anthem, which is stupid, called Advance Australia Fair. But everyone knows the real populist national anthem is Waltzing Matilda, uh, mm -hmm. which was written by Banjo Patterson. And it's the only national anthem that I know of anywhere in, in world history that is a ghost story. You know, at the end of it, the, the, the beautiful last line, and his ghost may be heard as you walk beside the billabong. You know, you'll go waltzing mm -hmm. Matilda with me. It's just a chillingly beautiful song. And I, I love the fact that, that there you have, uh, you know, embedded in the national psyche the idea of this uh, wayfaring sort of hobo ghost, you know? I think that's a beautiful mm -hmm. 
cultural statement. Uh, let me ask you too, like when when it turns to formally uh, written uh, ghost stories, uh, mm-hmm. what are a couple of your favorites? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the formally written ghost story. Well, I literature, literature, <laughs> literature. Growing up, I would always read scary stories to tell in the dark. That had mm-hmm. some good ones. The hook hand on the car yeah, door. Can't beat that. Can't beat that one. Um, trying to think of some one. The ones that really always chilled me in the stories that I would read as a kid, which I would check out from the library, always had to do with aliens and uh, uh, monsters. Um, the ghost ones definitely uh, freaked me out. There's one I recall. Was it the golden hand? I want to say that one. I remember freaking me out. It's a ghost looking for its golden hand and sort of chasing kids around. Um, the The novel to The Ring, it's called uh, Ring, mm-hmm. surprisingly enough, <laughs> is, really, is, uh, is really good. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a whole series of books, in fact. There are about six Ring books um, that I, have, I haven't read all of them, but they're, they are quite good. Um, how about you? What... Uh, what written ghost stories would you say? Oh, by the way, you know it's such a cliche, but you know something like uh, Pet Cemetery really did a number on me when I read it as a kid. Most of this is from when I when I was a kid because I, um, you know, I guess I kind of stopped reading ghost stories at a certain point, but I would like to get back into them. Well, there is a great tradition in, in many different literatures. I. In, in terms of the classic English ghost story, for instance, I, I think the world of M.R. James' story, The Mezzotint, which is a real, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an idea that has been used many times, bef- you know, since, and many, many, many <clears throat> times before, about a work of art that uh, comes alive and, and has, and reveals uh, a terrible crime to it. But I, one of my favorite all-time uh, works is is Henry James the Turn of the Screw. I was going to say the Turn of the Screw. God damn it! Why why did I, I forget that one? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, that's such a that's such an obvious one. <laughs> I, I I think that is just a mind bending achievement uh, because mm-hmm. of course the first time you you read it and you can read it you know many times later in life and enjoy it as as a great gothic ghost story straight up you know no question. Uh, there is a, a wonderful psychological uh, Freudian angle to it that you can come to, uh, you know, from a more adult point of view. But for people who are uh, writers or interested in, in, in the backstories of, of books, uh, I really encourage seeking out Henry James' own commentary uh, on, on the development of that novella. Uh, because mm-hmm, it is mm-hmm. it is as insidiously beautiful as the story itself. Um, mm-hmm. He's he was absolutely at the top of his game, and was aware of it. And his his backstory, uh, author's notes, what have you, is something that every serious writer should pursue. But I think it's a beautiful way of gauging that oscillation between the ghost story angle and the more uh, 
psychological adult interpretation of it because he's oscillating mm-hmm. the whole time and he is playing that wire like a master it's just beautiful mm-hmm. my other favorite and it's a i don't know how i would do it but if i were given money to direct a film i've always wanted to at least try the ambrose beer story the damned thing uh, okay, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh man, well, it is just a—it's a beautifully crafted story. I don't want to give away too much. People who are familiar with it would, will understand why it might be difficult to film, but nonetheless interesting. And it—it it is just a a It's—it's it's Beerus's best story, I think, and it, it lingers down the years as a a wonderful example of narrative framing and uh, perspective with a mm-hmm. just a chilling tone throughout that gets to the heart of, of I think why ghost stories work for us is because they they function at the, the childhood level of monsters under the bed and the darkness and the shadows and the things we can't quite see but also on the adult level of how we take that child with us and we interpret those, you know, fears from the very, very beginnings of our lives and how we translate those into supposedly more mature terms. And yet they don't lose their fear, you know, fear potential, you know. What do you think about The Shining, the book? Uh, you know, The Shining is a book I think is, is, is much more of an achievement than than. Uh, the Kubrick film and a lot of people love the Kubrick film and I think there's a lot of great things that were achieved there absolutely Uh, Mm -hmm. there were a couple of really cool things that didn't get to happen the topiary maze uh, comes to life in King's book Um, I think King wrote that at kind of the peak of his uh, cocaine and beer phase cranking stuff out with a total (laughs) belief total belief in what he was doing um and for whatever is is uh insufficient you know in king's work at the sentence level uh i think that his his vision and his sort of quentin tarantino fan boy turned writer uh Mm -hmm. because that's what he was you know he was just a tremendous passionate fan uh that he just had to keep he had to do this and I think The Shining is one of the one of his works where he really had to do it, and it, it. I think I haven't read it for a while, but I remember thinking, well, this is one of the three King works that I really think stand up. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears really quick for the end of the episode here and pontificate briefly on the similarities and differences, but. Uh, the, the the kinship vibe between Halloween and the Day of the Dead, which are arranged very closely in time, but are very different holidays. So living in El Paso every Day of the Dead, a local coffee shop that uh, served kind of indigenous Aztec-style food, really great chilies and, and rice dishes, uh, would have a Day of the Dead festival where people could set up their altars to their ancestors. We here in this house, we participate in the 
altar building in which you leave offerings to the dead. Um, have you been to a Day of the Dead festival, Chris? Oh, yes, several times. And I, I make it a real point here in Vegas. We have some really, really great, great local festivals uh, that are just absolutely tremendous from, from the music, the food, certainly the visual art point of view, but they're tremendous community events. And, and there is something profoundly different, I think. Um, well, for starters, I think the Day of the Dead is, is entirely community and, and ceremonially directed, uh, where it really is a, a resurgence, reinvention, celebration of, of enduring culture. Um, so it's ironic, you know, it, it's completely ironic. And that's why you have these beautiful masks. I'm very proud of the Day of the Dead mask that I made. I'm a mask maker and I, I made one uh, here under local tutelage. Um, and I think it's a pretty cool work of art. I think we've referenced it in one of our earlier uh, visualizations. I, I think the difference is uh, the kind of passionate enjoyment of continuance on a very civic level. So it, mm -hmm. to me, it's very social. It's very much uh, kind of counter to the spirit world in a sense, or said a different way, it's about offering food, offering music, offering dance, offering story <coughs> to the spirit world to really yeah. engage in the human community of the moment as opposed to sort of the European tradition of All Hallows' Eve of letting the spirits, the demons, the darker things in and mm -hmm. moving a little bit into their world, you know? It's kind of a mm -hmm. Venn diagram difference in my view. I like that. I like that way of putting it. And you can see it in the aesthetic tendencies of the different celebrations. So in Halloween, everything becomes dark and gross and decomposing. Not that there's anything wrong with this, because I do like some Halloween aesthetics. I like the cobwebs and the zombies and the witches and all that kind of stuff. Me too. But, you know, it's, it's moving into that physical realm of decomposition and 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 ghosts and things of that nature and like you like you said and you would know because you've been to these when you go to a day of the dead fest you know everything is sparkling yeah and bright and the crepe paper is colorful i and love marigold. those oh marigold yeah yeah we we grew uh, in el paso we grew they called it uh sempasuchi is the nahuatl name for marigolds and we would grow marigolds and, and give them out every day of the dead uh, but the way that those flowers look and the way that the altars look in these beautiful pictures that were taken in the 40s 50s 60s and 70s even something as poignant as you know a pack of cigarettes of the dead's favorite cigarettes placed on the altar it's more of a, a celebration of of life and death Whereas, um, see, I don't know. I almost said that, you know, where Halloween represents perhaps more of a fear of death, but I don't think that's right. I think you, the way you had it is right. It's this oscillation. It's, it's whose house is, who is stepping into whose house. Right. Might be the right. best way of putting it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the key difference. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. Well, that'll about do it 
for our final free episode. I, Thanks, I do, everyone. I could oh, do a got, short reading. More? I could do a short reading. What you got? Well, I did. Well, I think so. I I mean, I think it's a nice way to close this out, and it is a Halloween theme. And I, I would. uh, It's a little, you know, it's it's a bit of. It's not too long, but I think it would be worth um, as as a way of going out. What do we think about that? Could we put up with me doing a short read from my book, Sea Monkeys? Oh, I'd love to hear it. Let's do it. Okay, this is part of a longer story, which is really a love letter and thanks to my big sister. Halloween was our big time. Uh, We won the school competitions for the best costumes five years in a row until uh, she, she's five years older, so eventually she could no longer, you know, she was at another school and it, it, you know, everything comes to an end. But we took that very seriously and we would start planning our Halloween costumes in August. Uh, She was a great field marshal for that. But this is related to a kind of the sense of how our family holiday, uh, our family mythology mingles with a larger holiday such as Halloween. So this is uh, just, it's not too long. My sister got me hooked on the World Book Encyclopedia and presided over our collection of story records. Our very, very favorite was a Walt Disney creation that brought together two great Washington Irving tales. Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. The character voices were superb and the music was a major improvement on what appeared in the cartoon movies. What really got us though was the Headless Horseman song in which Brom Bones famously terrorizes Ichabod Crane knowing he can scare the bejesus out of him to keep him from winning the attention of Katrina Van Tassel. Along about midnight, the ghosts and Van Shees get together for their nightly jamborees. I'd have to say this was a defining story in our lives. For once you cross the bridge, the ghost is through, his power ends. You can never be sure if Ichabod is pursued by the mutilated rider who haunts the old Dutch countryside of the Hudson River Valley. And everyone who's been there knows just what an odd locale it is. And anyone who knows Dutch people knows how odd they are. Or if the whole awful ordeal is a played out but pretty mean prank by Brom Bones. The desire to believe in the headless horseman The supernatural evil works hard against the mundane explanation. Attention, I'd end up having quite a bit to do with, as it turns out. When the eerie laughter and the music began, I'd get on my rocking horse and start frantically riding for the bridge. It was a trance state that took over my whole body, producing an intense young erection and electrifying the hairs on the back of my neck a delirious high like unto a drug, if I'd known then what drugs were like. With a hip, hip, and a clippity-clop, he's out looking for a head to swap. So don't try to figure out a plan. You can't reason with a headless man. But as scary as Brom Bones and the Headless Horseman were, 
My sister and I both lived in dire, glorious fear of Van Cheese, picturing him as the awakened corpse of some ghastly, slobbering, burlap-headed Dutch renegade soldier from the Hessian or World War, or War of 1812, a vast, rotting presence, lord of spirits and convener of dark ceremonies. It would be many, many years and strange dark ceremonies of our own before we'd realize that the words we both heard and came to sing along to in our exuberant terror, the name and the dreadful ghoulish presence it inspired was all a misunderstanding. Along about midnight, it wasn't the ghosts and Van Cheese who came out for their fiendish fun. It was the ghosts and banshees, a much different proposition. I think both of us are glad we didn't know that then. We'd have missed a delicious fright that we could actually savor. The curious thing is that we both knew what banshees were, even me then. We were rather well-versed in magical beings in our house. But it says something about the nature of perceptions, families, and how mythologies grow, that for years the specter of Van Cheese loomed in our living room. I've often wondered since if what would happen later was foreshadowed in this imagined predator, or does a shared mistake reveal a family tendency to personify darkness and so to call it forth. Maybe what we fantasized Van Cheese to represent is always there in every living room, waiting to take shape and give new shadow to midnight, whenever summoned by either vulnerability or desire. And perhaps those two states of being are but different names for the same thing if we delve deeper. I think back to my rocking, the as yet undefined blur between ozone excitement, fear, erotic stimulation, hunger, longing, innocence, greed, both pursuit and escape.